0: Next time you drive past the carpool pickup line at a public school, remember this. One in every three parents of a kid in public school wants to leave, but can't. They simply can't afford it. Right now, there are policy reforms sweeping state after state, driving educational choice that could really change this reality. Last month, Learn Capital hosted a Flourish conference, where over 300 of the biggest minds in policy, technology, and investing came together to talk about education and beyond, as well as the wild trends that are happening right under our noses. I'm Evan Baer. This is Venture to Flourish, a podcast from Learn Capital for founders, investors, and leaders who are working to build ventures to drive what we call human flourishing. This is the first episode of a special three-part series in which we're bringing you panel discussions from this conference. Today's panel will talk about how education savings accounts, called ESAs, are transforming educational opportunities for families, unlocking $25 billion towards school choice, and when you add in 529 accounts, it adds in another $450 billion. Yeah, that's a half trillion dollars. On the panel, you'll hear from Dan Lips, the guy who literally invented the ESA, Julie Lynn, who joins us after literally walking out of the governor's office. Glenn Gilzine, who implemented the first ESA for special needs students, and Preston Cooper, who's tackling student debt by holding colleges accountable. Join us for a deep dive into the world of alternative education funding and how these policy changes are opening the door for startups to disrupt education systems and bring flourishing to students around the country. Thanks for joining.
1: So I'm going to start this off with a a few startling facts. Uh, One is a, a 2019 study from Bellwether. OK, so it's a pre-COVID study that in the United States, 82 percent of students go to public schools. OK, guess what? Of that 82 percent or, you know, if, if you look at the percentage that actually go willingly to public versus those who would prefer to go to private, a full 36 percent actually would prefer to go to a private school if they had access to an ESA. That's back in 2019 pre-COVID. I haven't gotten an update from uh, from Bellwether, but can you imagine what, what percentage of, of parents would actually like to send their kid to a quality private with something like an ESA if they could today? Second context, there are 11 million students or former students that are behind on their student loans today. And uh, we have a, a system there that is very challenging and is perpetuating some major structural problems with the way student loans are provisioned today with no accountability on results and ROI, so we'll touch on that. But we've got a fantastic panel. I'm actually gonna let them introduce themselves as we go here, I'll point out some facts, but maybe Dan, you can start. Dan is actually credited with inventing, or is the originator of the ESA concept. So Dan, if you would maybe start off with a little bit on your background.
2: Thanks, Greg, I'm a, a, my name is Dan Lips, I'm a senior fellow with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. FreeOp a think tank focused on researching and developing policy recommendations that assist those living below median income or wealth. I've been working on public policy issues since 2000, largely focusing on education reform. I proposed the concept of ESAs as a vehicle for expanding school choice back in 2005. Since then, spent eight years working in the Senate and been with FreeOp for the past three years.
3: I'm Preston Cooper. I'm also with a free op and I work on a higher education policy. My, the, my area of research specifically is uh, the ROI of a college education and how that varies across different institutions, different programs, and uh, trying to make the case that you know the root of our student loan crisis really is when education does not justify its cost. And if we can find a way to solve that problem to make sure that when students are investing in post-secondary education, they're going to get a financial return, I believe that's the way to solve the student loan crisis for good. Excellent, Preston.
4: And good afternoon. Thanks, Greg. And thanks, everybody here. My name is Glenn Gilzine. My career has always been focused on helping low-income kids get access to education freedom. So it's interesting to see the architect behind ESA. A few years back in 2014, actually, in Florida, we were part of the team that actually implemented the first ESA for special needs students and the first around the country. And then part of the team that actually expanded the Tax Credit Scholarship Program, which is also the de facto voucher organization in Florida. And we're able to grow that to about $1.4 billion in scholarships that goes out to kids to go to private schools in the state of Florida. Today, the governor of this great state of Florida talked about the passage and the importance of House Bill 1, which will create a universal ESA for all families in the state, which will open up the door to so many families. So really excited about the conversation and going from there.
1: Great. And I just want to point out that Glenn is also the chairman of the governor's uh, commission on juvenile justice and also heads the uh, Urban League of Central Florida. And is running a stealth mode, a learn back to studio company as well. so he's got he's a busy busy guy these days. So, Dan, you know, we've been saying at, at Learn for a long time that the the revolution is the devolution, and that there there is a Scandinavian model we are going to head to. It exists in Sweden, and that is basically money following child. In Sweden, they don't discriminate between public and private school. You seamlessly go in one or the other. a lot of people don't even know whether their school is public or private, similar to a state like Arizona. you know, we, we thought it would happen a lot sooner. <laughs> it's finally happening. Why are things happening now?
2: Well, it's a great question. I think that there's many reasons why there's growing interest in giving families more choice. I think the pandemic certainly opened people's eyes to what was happening in our public school systems. And there's a, a number of other factors. I think that it, just to level set our conversation, does everybody know what we're talking about when we're talking about K-12 ESAs? Basically, the idea is to provide funding directly to families. In Texas, the bill under consideration would give 10,000 that could be spent for private school tuition, for tutoring, for saving for future college use. And it's it's really a revolution is happening. Right now, 10 ESAs exist in 10 states. We're likely to see that grow to 11 sometime soon with Arkansas. With the passage of the Florida bill that we are very hopeful about this year, we're likely to see kids in up to 5 million kids have access to ESAs. They're not all gonna take them, but it'll be an option for those who are disserved by the current public school system. And if Texas comes through, this could be an option for 10 million families. And for those of us who've always believed that it's the disadvantaged families who don't have a right of exit when their child isn't being taught to read by fourth grade, which is the harsh reality for 50% of low-income families in Texas, 60% of families in Fort Worth, Austin, and Houston, fourth graders can't read. What would you do if you were a parent and your child couldn't read in fourth grade? My kids are young, but I know that I would hire a tutor. I'd change schools. We might homeschool, but families without means can't do that. After this year, that could be families and up to 10 million kids are going to be able to take control of their own destiny, which opens up a lot of opportunities for the kinds of people in this room to help meet that demand. And I think also some real responsibilities to do that well and to make sure that this works. But I think it's
4: a terrifically exciting time. Excellent. Can I I I, piggyback off of that? Sure. No, go ahead. Please. So what's really exciting about what you just said is how, think of a child who's a low-income child whose parents who don't have the means to cover the cost of private school tuition and being able to get them a high quality education. In Central Florida, let me just give you some some stats. At zip code 32805, 70% of the families in that community don't have a high school diploma. In Orlando, 19% of African-American kids can't do math. I said that wrong. 19% of kids can, who are African-American can do math. So that's 81% who are not proficient then that number goes up slightly up to about 20% who are not proficient in reading. People think of Orlando as the tourism capital of the world, the Disney, the happiest place on earth. But what you don't see is that we have a really thriving military aerospace def- defense community, almost $20 billion. So as an urban league, putting on my urban league hat, and I'd fight for economic justice and giving people access to equal opportunities through upskilling and et cetera, how can I advocate to a corporation and say, please hire this individual if, if I just said less than four-fifths of African-American kids can't do math in the aerospace? It's impossible. So what ESA does, it helps level that playing field. So I just want to give that context of, and that's just Orlando, but if you go to every major urban market in across the country, those statistics are the same, if not worse. So ESA will be a level playing field for all, all families and all communities. Thanks, Greg.
1: No, helpful. That's great, Glenn. Thank you so much. I actually want to talk about how how Glenn and I met, and uh, and 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 touch on a, on a on an issue here. So, I mean, obviously, it's a civil rights issue of our time to level this playing field and to provide these access out of these depressing scenarios you guys have outlined. However, the at the end of the day, you need quality supply, and you need that to be pervasive around the country, on both bricks and mortar and online models. And that's that's where Learn Capital's come in. And one of our dreams was that we could back premium school operators. That could start out private but could then eventually operate and serve students in the full voucher or charter market so i met glenn through through evan a number of years
4: ago and recently tell him what i toured recently glenn so you were able to come and visit the first ever montessori hybrid school in the state of florida powered by our good friend ray with his higher ground model but what's exciting is that in my market Montessori education costs roughly $25,000, just two premier schools, Lake Highland Prep and Windermere Prep. So African-American families, or Hispanics, which also, or just low-income individuals don't have access to it. And with the help of Greg, where he got up and he spoke at an event, he said, my daughter is in this awesome Montessori program and everything. And I jokingly said, so, Ray, I mean, Greg, that's great for affluent families, but what are we going to do for low-income Black kids? And then that's when he connected me with Ray, and ever since, we've been able to transform number of students' lives, and we're excited about this coming future, this fall, to grow and scale the school. Our thesis is that one of the biggest assets in the African-American community is the church, and it sits vacant Monday through Friday. So with the help of Ray and others, we're going to basically leverage that space and turn that into learning centers and then use this hybrid approach of leveraging ed tech, community-based organizations, and then public policy. And lastly, I would say is that Greg and I coined the term that what we're developing is the new Public-Private Partnership 2.0.
1: Excellent, Glenn. Um... I know julie's on her way from the Capitol. she's actually former education advisor to governor perry and is actually working actively on the texas legislation right now and will hopefully make it before the end of the panel but preston maybe you can talk about the higher ed and where that intersects with with k-12 in the future to solve some of the problems we're talking about
3: absolutely i mean the higher ed and the k-12 conversations really are inseparable i mean so If we look at, you know, what is the number one risk to students when they begin post-secondary education, it's that they won't graduate. 70% of students who default on their student loans never got a degree or certificate. And so what's the number one predictor of whether you're going to graduate or not? It's your academic performance in high school. If you have a higher SAT score, if you have a higher GPA, if you take more AP classes, if you get more college credits that way, you are far more likely to finish college. And if you control for these uh, these indicators of academic performance, we see that... uh, graduation rate gaps between rich and poor students narrow dramatically. So really, if we're trying to de-risk, you know, higher education, if we're trying to make sure that more students can benefit from this, it really starts at the K-12 level. It requires making sure that all students have access to a solid academic foundation that's going to prepare them for success in college and beyond. And so that's really where the ESA conversation comes into play, not only in offering students access to tutoring or to a better quality high school or to those other academic supports, but also you know helping them cover fees for AP clep exams areas where they can get a college credit before they even set foot on a college campus in order to maximize their odds of graduating and therefore maximize their odds of receiving a return on investment from their education
1: excellent and just following up on that i know governor yunkin of virginia who Evan and i were with last year tweeted that in the future he wants all virginian high school students to graduate with either a certificate more than associate's degree. Pretty, pretty ambitious vision. But I'm curious, what do you, what do you, what do you see happening in the sort of dual degree or
3: early college realm? Yeah, well, I think that there's obviously a lot of concern about the cost of college right now, and I think students are looking for ways that they can cut maybe a year or even more off of their their college expenses, and one of the great ways to do that is to try and take college credits while you're in high school, whether that's through a dual enrollment program, which I think more and more states are becoming interested in, or trying to get college credits through those CLEP exams, those AP credits.
1: And if that dual enrollment is is on t- if that's, if that's an ESA that's effectively... Is that competing in your mind with the ESA for for the completion of high school or is that an is that specifically an ESA for basically college that you happen to take early? Yeah. So th- well, y- not mutually exclusive.
3: Yeah, they're they're definitely they're definitely not mutually exclusive. And I think that's one of the wonders about e- wonders of ESAs is that you are putting that money into the hands of parents, students and their families so that they can figure out how to use that money to the, their best advantage to get the most out of their education. And so I really see it as leaving it up to the parent to the
4: student to decide what path is right for them. But, Greg, could I just add, I think where you're going to see, especially what we're working together on, is more of a blended funding approach. So in Florida, we envision being able to do both the vertical integration of helping a child, but then also helping the family or helping the child through certification. So the bucket of funds that will be an ESA fund that will handle the day. Aspect of it. But then in the afternoon, imagine that child going to an apprenticeship using WIOA fundings, which is the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, right? So I see more of a blended approach where you will allow the child to still get their core, but then supplement it with additional public funding that exists.
1: So, Dan, give us a give us a sense of the future here. So, as Glenn pointed out, you know, my the school where my daughter goes to, higher ground education is now Free in Orlando, thanks to an ESA equivalent. The how do you I mean, how important is Texas in, in what's going to be happening nationwide? And w- you know, where do you see this movement on how's it been driven by COVID also? So where do you where do you see it over the next sort of thirty-six months?
2: I think that there's a lot of momentum. I'm I'm really optimistic about Texas, but I think that the momentum will exist with or without Texas. One of the trends we've seen is that once small programs are created they lead to bigger programs. That's been the experience in Florida over the past 20 plus years, Arizona, and there's little programs in other states, Tennessee, Mississippi, Indiana, that could grow into much bigger programs. So a few years from now, we could be talking about 15 to 20 million kids having this as an option. I think that- There's another big aspect of this, which are 529 accounts, and I think there's some really huge policy opportunities for that to go into the funding model that Glenn was talking about. Right now, there's $450 billion in 529s. After the 2017 tax bill, there was a change to allow those funds to be spent on K-12. Almost expanded that to include tutoring and more of the outside of school expenses that address some of the enrichment gaps that we see. Adding to that, there's a big movement in the States to provide direct funding into to low-income children's 529s. So that could be a really exciting way to drive more power to parents, particularly those who don't have means, adding in those different funding revenue streams of other government programs.
1: Interesting. Do you actually? I want to. I want to switch over to Preston. So, oh, Julie has, has Julie has a fresh fresh update straight from the Capitol. So, I gave a, a a brief bit of your background, Julie, that you advised Governor Perry in education policy. And now a, a lobbyist working with a variety of education providers and others on, on pushing legislation here in Texas. But maybe give us hot off the press update on ESAs in Texas. And, and I know there's a host of policy initiatives that, that you're better ahead in, in front of this session, but maybe you can give us an overview.
5: Sure. There were meetings at the Capitol today, education committees meeting yesterday, today, tomorrow. So apologies for the delay. But looking at the participants that would be here in your audience, I narrowed down Texas education policy is very broad, but I wanted to narrow down some subject areas that I thought the audience would be particularly interested in. And I see Catherine there. Hello. A partner of ours here in Texas. Jay Heiler with Great Hearts America. Good to see you. So ESAs, you mentioned that off the bat. Texas is interesting. Our legislature meets every other year for five months. And by law, we're not allowed to hear legislation for the first 60 days. You're not allowed to pass legislation for the first 60 days. So really, your policymaking making is accomplished within three months, so March through May, and it's it's very intense. And I'm here with my partner, Florence Shapiro. She was a 20-year state senator and led the education committee in the Senate for, for two decades. So we spend a lot of time in the interim because we then have a year and a half. We spend a lot of time in the interim looking at interim studies and studying topics very deeply. And then through the fall to mid-March, develop legislation and the filing deadline for all bills in texas is this friday so there are numerous pieces of legislation that will be very important that are still being drafted that are due to be filed by friday one of which is the esa bill so the texas senate in previous legislative sessions has passed some form of school choice in in the form of an esa bill And this is the first legislative session, though, where the governor is very engaged and very supportive of ESAs. He's actually made it his number one priority every few days. He's somewhere across Texas at parent empowerment nights talking about ESAs. So while we're still waiting for the final version of the bill, the governor is supporting very broad ESAs that would be eligible for any Texas student. And... I think there will probably be a couple of versions of the bill filed this week. One version will probably limit it to to free and reduced lunch students, economically disadvantaged students, and another will be included in a broader piece of legislation around parent empowerment and transparency and decision-making and include an ESA piece. So that's certainly um a significant piece of legislation. The Texas House, though, has typically not been supportive, even though it's a Republican-dominated house. So many of those districts are rural districts, and the political dynamic there is those districts are, their largest employers are typically the school districts. And so they're very conflicted on voting for ESA legislation. So it'll be interesting, once again, to see how the House aligns.
1: What are your uh, professional odds on it at the moment?
5: Oh, goodness. I think if an ESA bill passes, that it will likely not be a broad ESA bill, but rather a much more streamlined bill. In Texas policy, sometimes we bracket legislation to certain geographic areas. Um, So there have been discussions around, do we bracket it to just major urban districts? Interestingly, though, the data, there was a recent poll that showed the highest support for ESAs in Texas are actually from parents in rural areas. So it'll be interesting to see if policy aligns with data um so they could bracket it to large urban areas they could bracket it to students who have sped learning needs or free and reduced lunch students so my professional guess is if a bill passes it will be bracketed in some form
1: okay fascinating now there's some other ways to skin the cat as you know there's there's charter schools there's virtual charter schools how do you how do you see those evolving in this session
5: Sure. The number one priority for charters this legislative session is Texas is interesting. It's known nationally as one of the most difficult states to be approved as a new charter. But then once you're approved, because our current commissioner of education, who's appointed by the governor, is very charter supportive. Once you're approved, if you show success financially and academically for three years, you have great opportunity to expand. You write charter expansion amendments every year. We've done it at Great Hearts and and expanded across the state, expanded Great Hearts into an online program. But you can expand through charter expansion amendments. Increase the number of campuses, increase your geographic area, increase the number of students enrolled. The number one barrier to growth, though, is certain municipalities when you try to go into dallas isd for example you want to expand your charter into dallas great hearts hasn't expanded into dallas and one of the reasons is there's a huge coordinated push at the at the local level municipal level with regard to permitting and zoning and fees that don't apply to traditional districts and so the number one bill this session is a municipality bill And then with regard to online charters, so in response to COVID, there was this really deep discussion around emergency response online learning versus high quality online learning and the experiences that families and students have. And so we created a bill and passed it two years ago to create the Texas Commission on Online Learning to look at best practices and models because our existing code that we've been operating under for about 20 years has a lot of limitations. Very few districts or charters were able to offer full-time or supplemental online learning and hybrid learning wasn't allowed at all because of our funding model as a seat-based funding model in Texas. So you weren't incentivized to do interesting hybrid programs because if students didn't have a butt in a seat that day, you weren't funded for it. So we passed a bill to create the Texas Commission on Virtual Education. And that commission was appointed by governor, lieutenant governor, speaker. And they spent the last year, all of 2022, studying national best practices. We had experts come in and had a really comprehensive report. And that report is now resulting in legislation. The House bill was filed last week. The Senate bill will be filed this week. They'll be very similar. And we're working deeply on the bill. But Great Hearts, for example, operated a full... They stood up, innovated a a full-time online program using a lot of the flexibilities that Commissioner Morath allowed just during COVID emergency response and then we got that extended for two more years and now this bill will allow if passed which i do believe that it will pass this session it will allow districts and charters to innovate to provide full-time online programs hybrid programs. It suggests changing the funding model away from an ADA-based model for full-time online and hybrid programs. And then supplemental course providers. So you probably have some supplemental course providers here in the audience hoping to take some barriers away for student enrollment. Right now, districts can deny students enrollment in online courses for a myriad of reasons. So we're trying to tackle that as well.
1: Fantastic, super helpful. Well, look, I want to I want to ask Glenn and Dan about. I mean, Glenn, maybe you can talk about. I mean, Florida started in a restricted fashion as well with their vouchers. So, and now we seem to be in a competition among governors, a healthy competition of wanting to outdo each other. So, maybe you can touch just really quickly where 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 Florida is and the ev- evolution of how it got to where it is right now.
4: Yeah, everything that we you just heard, and we're just really excited that we have a governor who's very ambitious and leading the charge. I'm hearing from other states, there's like, whatever Ron DeSantis is doing, follow that lead and everybody else is following, which is really good. But with H-Bill 1 that will hit the floor in the House this week, it will create that universal ESA for all families. The governor just did a press gaggle not too long ago. He had the state of state today and he talked about how it's important to make sure that every child get access to education freedom going forward. We've evolved from... Where we, the the initial fights were very similar, where it was all about we in order to get something passed, we had to go after free and reduced lunch and families, and then every year we continue to say, okay, how can we increase that? Increase the the wages and but the, the family household incomes and things of that nature. So it's a great time to be in Florida, and it's a great time to have access to this education freedom. You know, it's it's
1: it's fascinating. Actually, we have Patty Bouie's here doing consulting work for us on on the t- history of takeovers of school districts. And what's fascinating is Florida, having this choice over the last you know, fifteen years almost, has actually enabled its its public schools to really respond and improve. And if you look at the takeover environment in Florida, there's really, you know, unlike Houston or a lot of other places where there's just you know, you know, should be taken over, should be taken over, should be taken over. You know, Florida has actually had a massive turnaround in their public school performance because of choice. So it's it's pretty fascinating. You know, Dan, if if Texas ends up being a, a limited some limitations as as Julie described, is, is that a, is that still a big win for the movement? I mean, with Florida and Texas, it's sort of as they go shall everyone but the zombie California.
2: Absolutely, it's a. <laughs> Absolutely. It would be a huge win. That's been the case in Arizona. It started off 20 plus years ago with charter schools and tuition tax credits expanded to vouchers, now ESAs, just like Florida. So it's a natural model for these programs to grow that way. And I think one of the best things about these experiences is that when a program like this is very revolutionary, it's introduced to a community, there's some concerns. They realize that the, the the world doesn't end especially when you see the value it's provided in arizona and florida to special needs students people become comfortable with the idea which grows support
1: excellent now preston let's let's close with you because you had some you know some of your research is fascinating on how you're proposing to fix higher ed which obviously i think part of that solution feeds back into high school and doing perhaps you know dual enrollment early college in high school but it it, it seems like uh, we have a shared belief in that ultimately you need the universities who basically have this free financing stream to stand behind what they're actually. I've always said that, like, if you would just get them to guarantee 5% of principal going up five percent per year eventually you 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 know you you'd see some real transformation in, in higher ed but it was fun to read some of your research here maybe you can give it if you could summarize some of your your advice on how to restructure higher ed lending and the probability of, of that happening based on your read of the political environment today
3: absolutely well I think the root of the problem as you as you said is that colleges really do not have a direct financial stake in their students future success so we uh, put out a, a comprehensive proposal just last week that would uh, basically ensure when uh, the federal government is making a loan to students if that student is not able to pay back their loan because their income is too low or they default then the college is going to have to compensate taxpayers for all or some of that loan and we believe that if the colleges are on the hook for some of that that they will say hey you know if we are charging too much for a program that does not deliver, you know, an economic value that is commensurate with with what we are charging, we are either going to have to lower that price or we're going to have to find ways to make sure that our education has more labor market relevance. And we estimate that if, the, if enacted, this proposal would save taxpayers about $13 billion per year. We reinvest a big portion of that into increased financial aid awards—you know, grant aid, not loan aid—for low and middle-income students who are pursuing high-return, uh, low-cost, you know, high ROI programs. And so, we believe that if enacted, this would be both kind of a carrot and a stick to ensure that colleges do have financial incentives to ensure they're serving their students well. Have you met Ken
1: Ruggiero from the last panel? Are you I'm clear? not sure, but <laughs> okay. So he a lot of what he's he's made a and he invented the the outcome based loan, where if the loan. Is if you don't get gainfully employed after taking his loan, it's forgiven tax free. And he's also tried, I think, unsuccessfully, to get the, the you know the student loans are currently non dischargeable. Another scam, right? That you that they can sell you this horrible product, but then you actually can't discharge it in personal bankruptcy. And he's tried, I think, to actually be the first student lender that can remove that criterion. And I think he's on the he's on the finish lines of that. I don't see him here. So, in any event, wonderful panel guys. Thanks so much for participating, Julie. Thanks for running over. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Venture to Flourish. If you know someone who should be listening to the pod, would you do me a favor and just send them a link? And check out the site, learn.vc slash flourish. There you can subscribe to our newsletter, read transcripts, find related articles, and even upcoming events. And hey, on a personal note, I'm really glad you're here there are a lot of parts of my own life where I feel like I'm languishing. So I love your interest in the topic and look forward to figuring out what we can achieve together. Signing off, it's Evan Baer from Venture to Flourish.